Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 13th, 2024 edition of Ask a Leader. We are three weeks out from the California primary election day, March 5th. Our vote by mail ballots are delivered. On February 24th, select vote centers will be open 25 with a drive through ballot drop-off. The Registrar Voters Office will be open for the entire voting period. Information is available, I always like to remind everybody, at the ocvote.gov website. Ask a Leader continues coverage of the primary. On today's roster are two state senator candidates running in the 37th district. First is Alex Mohajer, Democrat and L.A. County Departmental Employee Relations Representative. Then, in the second segment, will be Guy Selleck, Republican and CEO of Builders Max Incorporated. With more policies than we'll have time, I'm going to try to keep a brisk pace. We'll be right back. Thank you for staying tuned all. Let's listen to my our first guest, Alex Mojer, LA County civil servant advocate, political commentator and activist running in the March 5th primary as a Democrat in the California State Senate 37th District. That's where we are located, folks. This district includes Alisa Viejo, Anaheim, Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Laguna Beach, Laguna Niguel, Laguna Woods, Lake Forest, Mission Viejo, Mojesca, Newport Beach, just a little bit of it, and that sort of cuts around some of that, North Tustin, Orange, Santa Ana, Silverado, Tustin, and Villa Park. He recently served as president of the Stonewall Democratic Club in L.A., and he's an independent political writer with bylines at HuffPost, USA Today, and Medium. During the pandemic, he hosted the AM Report on HAPS News, a daily multicast that covered current events. In 2018, he received the Excellence in Journalism Award for uh, Excellence in Feature Writing from the National Association of LGBTQ Journalists. He was awarded in the 2020, in 2020, the Harry S. Truman Award from the Democratic Party of the San Fernando Valley and he is a uni high graduate, folks. Completed his associate degree at Irvine Valley College, his bachelor's of arts at UC Berkeley, and his JD at Chapman University. He joins me live in studio, which everybody knows I really, really cherish. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Alex Mohajer. Good morning, Claudia. And you just did such a deep dive on my bio. That's so wonderful. It's not, no, it's, you don't know how hard it is to go deep. And this was, for me, this is fleeting. So yeah. uh, there's so much to, uh, I'd like to have even parse more. So with a, with a very full roster of policies that I want to ask you about, I'm sure. asking for your utter, utter sign on to remain on topic, speak to the policies that affect all of us. I'm hoping we can get through with housing, and transportation, and there's a lot of real intersectional aspects to that, local government ethics, Orange County Board of Education expansion and all that. I don't think we're gonna get on to too many more, so here's our brisk pace. So starting Let's do it. with housing, would you lay out how you think the state is best advised to grapple with the yawning and complicated need for this housing? What demographic are you most concerned about? And given your situation, 
your home purchasing ordeal during the pandemic, your need to reside inside the 37th, those are all, those are all market housing market issues. Mm-hmm. The complexities are pretty personal and real for you. Well, I'm a millennial, and I know that me and my friends and everyone in my generation is really worried about uh, the rental market, the home buying market. It's the, the housing crisis affects everybody. But your question specifically was, what demographic am I most worried about? And it's our seniors. The fastest growing rate of unhoused people in California are senior citizens and students, students and seniors. And I believe that's a total moral failure of both of our political parties. It's a big major reason why I decided to run is because the cost of living, the cost of housing is just too damn high. And so there's a three-pronged solution for me. If we can move to the solution portion of your question, I've got a three-pronged approach to solving the housing crisis and to particularly help people who are the most vulnerable in our communities keep or access housing. Number one, I am proposing that we reform the state's Costa-Hawkins law to empower cities to enact locally controlled rent control ordinances. Rent control alone is not going to solve the problem, but it is a part of a three-pronged solution that I believe is going to be necessary in order to prevent more people from slipping into homelessness. Number two, broad tenant protections. I support the Homelessness Prevention Act, the Justice for Renters Act, and I will support broader tenant protections in the legislature. We will come in legislatively to protect against abuses against tenants and renters. And number three, we need more affordable housing. I am proposing the development of mixed use, mixed development, development and social housing near transportation hubs. As you said in your question, transportation is a crucial element to this, but also the intersection of trans- transportation, housing and climate are, to me, really important that we have legislators who understand the intersection of those three things. So, so I'm proposing the development of that housing near the Irvine-Tustin Railway Corridor, for instance, which is one of the busiest railway corridors in the state. We could be building more housing around that corridor, which gets people into housing near transportation hubs and also gets them off the roads, which also helps us meet our climate goals. So you maybe heard us talking last week about the Niskanen in, uh, Foundation Institute think tanks report on how there's that intersectionality of that they're saying sprawl is a good thing because you're the sprawl means you're accessing different housing markets to get people from and and using those fixed rail opportunities we don't have as many here as there are available and existing in the east where Niskanen's case Mm -hmm. studies were but but that intersectionality of transportation the climate footprints, uh, mm-hmm. various emissions footprints, and housing availability—all, but you, you, you rolled that in there. So, um, well, so it's. I want to note, I'm the only candidate in this race who's even talking about climate, who's even talking about housing, and to me, that's a real disappointment because those two, to me, are the two biggest crises the state faces, and these issues are intersectional to one another, and we need legislators who are going to reject the influence of housing lobbies and climate and fossil fuels if we really want to see major movement on those two issues. So calling out this is one thing. Mm-hmm. The presenting the leadership though, and I I want to know your impression when you saw the expansion of the Interstate 405 of four total new carpool lanes put in down the center where I I all, the listeners are hearing me say till I'm blue in the face, mm-hmm. but that that would have been a pretty nice if there was leadership in infrastructure funding there would have been a fixed rail down there instead of four carpool One. lanes, which are going to max out 
So 100%. I want. So where's the leadership? Where what leadership do you sort of bring well, along with you to say we? And then we were talking about uh, last week too. Then there is the the California Transportation Commission, the incumbent for um, that's now pulled into this district. Uh, Josh Newman uh, is. He's talking about, uh, he serves as a non-voting member of the California Transportation Commission, which is reviewing the emissions sort of projected for expansion of the corridor that goes out to the Inland Empire from Interstate 15. So what would you do as a state senator to bring other municipal leaders, state leaders, and the, the statewide uh, constitutional leaders to start solving this in the uh, 2024 kinds of you know mindset well realities well it makes sense because uh senator newman takes money from the fossil fuels industry and i distinctly do not and i'm the only candidate who has pledged to not take money from corporate PACs, fossil fuels lobbies or other special interest groups that are holding us back from making meaningful progress on these issues yes we need more investments in rail i will support uh, investments in high-speed rail, in traditional rail, and building out bus infrastructure here in Orange County. We need to build that out. We need to get people off the roads. And so uh, if we had some leadership, and you, you asked where is the leadership on this, if we had some real leadership in the state legislature who understood the intersection of these issues and who weren't taking money, and I'm talking about Democrats and Republicans from the same special interest lobbies that have held us back from progress on this, then we could actually get meaningful progress on getting a rail line up and down that uh, 405 and the five. So it's, it's to me, your question, of where is the leadership, that is why I'm running, is because I have seen every four years our elected officials with a handout asking for their a vote again and again, and we're going backwards and things have just gotten harder for people. But there's, there's already so much funding committed to this, so the leadership is, it's a delayed kind of response mm -hmm. in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, we've seen 405 performing the way it has mm -hmm. over decades, and it's just, uh, it's, so it's a matter of you bringing along a lot of people. You're not. You're, there's infrastructure already committed, but to, so to and to get ahead of there were in Irvine proper when you were you know you were otherwise uh, located that that every effort was made by neighborhoods in Irvine to malalign fixed rail transit by making it look like there was going to be a heavy gauged rail system going through Woodbridge Village. Which and and so it was, there was all these opportunities to launch the, I, I would say shiny, this is the only time I'm going to make shiny sound right, is that uh, there would be a shiny fixed rail solution instead of malaligning that. And back in the day when we could have been making these changes, so forward, it, you've, it's even a heavier lift now well, to I redirect the that. leaders. And I think if we if we're going in the wrong direction on this and we need leaders who are going to start doing the work of rolling up their sleeves, coming into the community, actually getting into the community and working with our community partners, working with local elected officials, I think Irvine's government, uh, we've got a pretty progressive city council here that's moved us, is moving us forward on climate issues. And so having a state partner to work with our cities down here and uh, ACTA and other groups is going to be important, but we got to get on the same page uh, that this is the way forward. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is one of the several sta the state Senate 37th District candidates, Alex Mohajer. He's an L.A. County civil service advocate, 
civil servant advocate, and he is a political commentator and activist. He's a Democrat running in this race. So we're witnessing Mm -hmm. an Orange County Board of Supervisor, Andrew Doe, appropriating $13 million of COVID relief funds that were they were set up to provide, among other things, senior meals, but without disclosing to his fellow board members, he moved that $13 million to an agency that his daughter was overseeing, but I, I'm just going to say that's a transfer payment to the family. Yeah. So I want to know what you would do in your state Senate capacity to legislate a protection uh, an ethical sort of requirement for full disclosure of where funds are going. And we haven't, that's the, as was mentioned in a previous interview, that's only the 13 million we know about. So what would you do in your capacity as a state senator? Well, you just said it. We need conflict of interest reporting and we need financial disclosures and our elected officials are supposed to do that. And um, we need to make sure our agencies are working together to prevent this kind of um, what feels like insider trading uh, from occurring. And th- this is a problem across the board. It's not, not just at the Orange County Board of Supervisors. There's just been legislation pushed at the federal level to stop members of Congress from trading stock, for instance. I think we need more financial transparency and more ethics rules. And I will support legislation that creates uh, clearer boundaries and guidelines by which our elected officials at all levels of government are allowed to engage in these kinds of contract decisions. Why do you think that there isn't a greater furor over that vanishing $13 million? What was the question? I didn't hear. The f- why do you think there is not a greater fu- furor over $13 million? Um, poof, vanishing. Uh, I think there's some furor, but I don't know. I, don't, I, I know I'm incensed by it, but maybe there's just so much going on in the world right now that it's... You know, it's hard. And our board of supervisors, I want to note, uh, there's issues across the board. I want to, I'm going to keep you on top, on, off, I'm not going to go off topic on it, but you know, that, that was incredibly uh, upsetting to me. And it's upsetting to me when any of our elected officials um, abuse the public's trust that way. So that's, that's a concern in terms of the voting process where prospective voters are flooded with recurrent and in deepening intensifying disasters there's a lot of disasters and a lot of things to track so I'm uh, so uh, I you bring out a point that I want to um, I remind listeners a lot and I ask some candidates especially the ones that are all the way down ballot it's going to be a challenge for them to get participation but so I, I'm thinking it's the work is cut out for one mm-hmm. to legislate though some kind of requirements for disclosure when there is there's a flood of uh, the attention away from what is being done by public servants and that the public servants will find a way to to move to move things around off the radar so it's it's a challenge to nail something down codify that in a state law this is a requirement to disclose we're going to move to do it. We need, uh, like I said, we need conflict of interest reporting and more stringent financial disclosure requirements for all of our elected officials. If you hold elected office, you should be held to a much higher standard than what we're seeing happen now. And that this was even able to happen is beyond me. And we need to get we need to get tighter regulations in place to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Okay, so last session. Senate Bill 270 
was is addressing i i don't believe i i'm not sure of the status right now but it is a a going concern it addresses the proliferation of single use plastic bags it had a loophole this was covered in the la times yesterday the loophole that allowed a slightly heavier hdpe plastic compound not a an a ldpe uh, formulation the former bag met the hdpe bag met the definition of reusable but has not in fact been used according it's been used as a, a single use mm -hmm. so other states only new york and new jersey they've subsequently passed legislation that closes this loophole so i'd like to know what you would do to minimize these kinds of plastic products that are in the sort of the chain of production and use and and then discharge we'll say in that sense how to to interfere this waste stream which has become i think by all objective measures a very pernicious waste stream ending in those microplastics. So very. what would you do with Senate Bill 270? Uh, very pernicious, and I'll note that only 9% of plastic that is recycled by the consumer is act and actually ends up recycled for one reason or another. So I'm supported by groups like Climate Action California, Sunrise Movement, and Ban Single-Use Plastics. And I'm going to say something kind of controversial, but we need to move towards a ban on single-use plastics in the state. And I am going to try to move us towards that. And we're going to do it. Uh, we're going to phase it in so that small businesses aren't crushed by the, the by the transition. We're going to do it over a couple of years. But we need to move towards a ban on single-use plastics. And I'll support that at the state. Well, the municipality here, Irvine tried yeah. to make a codify a comprehensive single-use plastic. And I, it, it, before our very eyes in one session and this particular proposed law uh, proposed ordinance i should call it that it was going to be phased out over several years but the and i actually when i'm looking up everybody's bios for doing these interviews mm -hmm. there on linkedin are these american beverage company like we got this we can just turn this convenient product into a recycled product so there's the american beverage company really created a lot of uh, disturbance in a public forum to consider a comprehensive approach to minimizing that. So with the American Beverage Company's intervention, they're heavy and lobbying with other small businesses that were saying we are affected by it. Mm. Without any evidence given in that particular city council session mm -hmm. that it was going to really affect them, and nobody's asking about that. We well. want to know how are you going to deal with those headwinds that says, you know, we know you're going to ruin us. Well, I'm the only candidate in the race who's pledged to not take any corporate PAC money. And I've raised my campaign funds from grassroots individual donors. And I will note Cal Matters reported that I have raised more money in this race than 10 of the 11 candidates running. And I'm very proud of that. So I've rejected the influence of corporate PACs. And by golly, are you saying, Claudia, that corporate PACs have a lobbied our policy making decisions so i think that the issue at the irvine level was that there are small businesses who are concerned about the onus on them to transition and the financial impact to them and i think that's what but they didn't present there. any evidence about what they just were talking and sweeping claim claims I, without I, details i understand that i understand that but what we need to do is make sure we work with 
our uh, small business owners, because I do want to protect uh, small businesses. A third of small businesses closed during the pandemic, and I think in California has become increasingly hard for everyday families to keep and start their small businesses. This is a story of a lot of immigrant families here, and I am the son of immigrants, and I, I very much so understand um, protecting small business owners is important, but balancing the interests, we need to move towards the single-use plastics ban, and we will do that at the state level. There is also the Senate bill that uh, Senator Dodd is proposing, an elder fraud protection bill, 278, that would clarify that victims of financial elder abuse can continue to hold institutions accountable. Let's, let's just say that the, the bank employee is watching this huge draft of money that was un, unusual, uh, atypical behavior for that client, that a patron of the bank, that this protection bill, 278, would make uh, hold accountable the lending, inst the, the financial institutions that were essentially witnessing that kind of abuse of mainly it's the senior demographic. So what would you do to codify that? This is the U.S. Senate bill? State. State, Senate. State Senator Dodd. Yeah. This is, sponsored. A bill, this is a bill I would support. Yeah, I would support it. I think that elders and our seniors need protections, um, financial protections, and also housing protection. There's a lot of discrimination in housing, and we don't have adequate discrimination protections for our elder population uh, when it comes to housing and, and their finances. So I will support it. So in 2022... The end-of-life options was up for a vote in the California State Senate mm -hmm. to renew a sun, a to be sunset end-of-life options legislation. That, and it was, to, it, it was created also to shorten the time where a person could exercise their the dispensing of medication and use them to take charge of their end-of-life situation. I, I have to put this in neutral terms as I can because I don't want to freight it with uh, any sort of triggering um, kinds of language, but I, I just try and it's, I just respectfully submit that this is a, it's giving people autonomy in some very, very sad Horrific and like so. Anyway, with that renewal of the made is one of the shorthands for that, but the end of life options. So uh, that is going to be in 2031. That will be again sunset. So I want to know, Alex Moger, what your position is on California's codifying for now and in perpetuity end of life options which are, if it's not just that it's going to sunset in 2031, but there is now a, a national legal challenge to all of the end-of-life options laws that have been adopted in the states around the country. And the last detail I want for everybody to have sink in is our incumbent, I am told by those that were shepherding this legislation at that right through that final vote on the Senate floor, our representative was not on the floor, did not vote on that. So right. I want to say the 37th district was not represented when the end of life options 
was renewed and improved. So what do you do with that legislation in committee and on the floor? Well, I haven't read that piece of legislation, so I don't want to give you an answer without having well, in, it. in principle, I'll tell, my, I'll tell you principally what I stand for is people's autonomy to make the decisions that are best for them in consultation with their families, with their higher power if they have one, and themselves. So I support people's autonomy there, and I support people having the dignity to make the decision that's best for them in what is ultimately one of the most difficult and, and heartbreaking sort of tragic situations. Um, and so that's principally where I stand value-wise. I haven't read the text of the bill you're talking about, but I want to also say, to me, it's outrageous when our legislators are not on the floor to take a bill. My primary opponent is called the abstainer, and I call him the No, not, that's not the incumbent. Yeah, no. He did not, not represent us. No. He represented the 29th, 29th yes. at that vote. But they do, But a lot of them do it, and it, and it drives me nuts. You got to be on the floor. You got to take your vote. And, um, and when they miss votes, to me, that is a total... That's what you were. That's what you were elected to do. Get on the floor and take a position. And actually, if you're scared about the position that you're going to take, come out into the community and talk to your constituents. And that's what I'm going to do as a state legislator. And it's one of the reasons why I'm incensed by some of the leadership that we see in our state legislature, because they they abstain when they feel it's uncomfortable or it flies in the face of the lobbies that have uh, donated to their campaigns and put them in those seats. So the. The uh, incumbent now, uh, Josh Newman, has uh, sponsored a, a legislation to enlarge the Orange County Board of Education to put two more seats on that because it's a it's a very large jurisdiction, and then move the Orange County Board of Education from the primary to the general election for more people that are going to be participating. So, what's your position on that? law change for the Orange County Board of Education and any comments about the what how the board's been conducting I support it I support democracy and I think it's much more democratic to put it on a general election ballot when more people are participating and to uh, get more representatives more um, I, I support it across the board so that's I support that the Board of Education and what we're having at our school districts is a lot of the reason why I decided to run uh, I am you know, I'm an, I'm going to be the first openly gay legislator elected in Orange County. And I have to tell you, um, uh, seeing what's happening, the anti-LGBTQ movement that's happened in school boards and school districts has been really upsetting to me and my community. And I think um, for the young queer kids who are out there right now growing up in OC, um, I would love for them to see um, uh, some themselves represented in the state legislature, and I want to help fight back against what we're seeing happen in our school districts. So, how Alex Mosier can people follow you? And Are we already done, Claudia? We're, we're, well, yeah, we're pretty close. Oh, I'm having such a good time. Oh, well, you. <laughs> so, where can people follow you? And a closing statement for people to uh, first to make sure they are voting, and yeah. and it's those ever critical factors. Yes, you can follow me uh, on Instagram, social media at Alex Mohajer, M-O-H-A-J-E-R. My website is alex4ca.com. And ultimately, I am just the son of working class immigrants who was born and raised here in Irvine, 
who understands the struggle and sacrifice of immigrant families and I want to make good on the American promise that families like mine struggled and sacrificed for and make things better. I think people are looking at, at the Democratic supermajority in the state and they're wondering why things have gotten harder for them and not easier. And I think it's because members of both parties take money from special interests. So I'm the only candidate in the race, Democrat or Republican, who's pledged to refuse corporate PAC, fossil fuels and other special interest money, which is why I need your listeners help. And I hope they will consider uh, visiting my website and casting their vote for us by by March 5th for a new generation of leadership in the state legislature. Well, Alex Moger, thank you very much for your time and coming you. all the way in Studio A with me today. Thank you so much. My guest was Alex Mohajer. He is a L.A. County civil servant advocate. Ser- civil, civil service advocate. It's civil service advocate, see? Yeah. And so LinkedIn and Biles, they're all kind of moving <laughs> targets. He's candidate running in the newly mapped 37th California State Senate District. He's running as a Democrat. And again, this includes Alisa Viejo, Anaheim, Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Laguna Beach, Laguna Niguel, Laguna Woods, Lake Forest, Mission Viejo, Majesca, Newport Beach, North Tustin, Orange, Santa Ana, Silverado, Tustin, and Villa Park. I'll be interviewing additional candidates running in this race, awaiting responses from several. I'll keep you posted. Stay tuned. We'll be back with Guy Sellett. Thank you for staying tuned, everybody. My next guest is Guy Selleck, founder, CEO, principal of Builders Max Incorporated. He's running as a Republican in the California State Senate 37th District, which and you've heard me all include. I don't need to spend the time on all the cities. Prior to founding Builders Max, Guy Selleck was a general manager at Boise Cascade in Riverside, director of purchasing and other roles at J.E. Higgins Lumber Company in Sacramento, manager of field sales at Roseburg Forest Products, master sergeant in the U.S. Air Force, and previous to that, sales manager at Prime Source Building Products. He serves on the Lake Elsinore Valley Chamber of Commerce. His post-secondary education includes farm management at Ellsworth College and logistics, materials, and supply chain management at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. He also today joins me live in Studio A. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Guy Selleck. Thank you, Claudia. Glad to be here. Very good to have you here. Everybody knows I love it when we're live and in person There's like this. So it's, as I've said with every candidate, it's a full roster. So I'm asking us to stay on the topic here. And I tried to give a pretty decent bio so people have a little perspective and context about your service and your enterprises. So uh, we're going to be covering housing, transportation, gov- local government ethics, and as many of the others, the board education, elder fraud protection, keeping a pretty brisk pace. But the first question I have to ask, because Absolutely. I think you're less known than other candidates who've been involved in some political aspects that are running for the state's 37th district. In as brief, because I know you've got this down, but in a brief, why and why this office? So, uh, and first, why now? Yeah, so. I, I certainly uh, never would have dreamed that I wanted to be involved in politics, quite frankly. I've, I've donated a great deal of money over the years to political candidates. 
and uh, having watched what's going on with our state, our country, over the last three years, I wasn't sure what else to do except run for office myself. So I decided to jump in the race, and I went to the OCGOP, and I looked at who was running, and quite frankly, it looked like more of the same. More of the same career politicians, more of the same people, and I just couldn't give money to that. Nothing was going to change. So I jumped in as an outsider to change the direction of our state. Okay. So you're writing yourself, you're writing the checks to you this time, not to other candidates. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, uh, in I'm other not people. completely self-funded, but I, I certainly don't have PAC money or anything else, right? Friends, family, uh, and, and my own money. So I like to ask all the candidates, it gives us a chance to see where your little bit about your sensibilities and your grasp of things that are intersectional, like sure. the housing situation. So I want to ask you, like I'm asking all the candidates, how you would address the housing situation, the status quo in California, in our 37th district here, and what demographic is of greatest concern to you, and what would you in the state Senate capacity do to resolve this yawning gap of the housing market and the need? So interestingly enough, my business is building materials, wholesale distribution. For the last 30 years, I've been in the building materials business, which means I've basically been in the housing business. And no, I don't build the houses. Uh, no, I have not uh, been somebody uh, doing massive developments, but I am the guy selling to the people that are doing that work. And again, for 30 years I've been doing that. So I, I get a pretty good view of what's going on. I also have a company called Gem. That Gem is a real estate development company and I have 15 acres that I'm developing myself uh, for industrial property out in Lake Elsinore, California. So going through that process, I really learned about all the red tape that developers are really, you know, they're really working their way through. Uh, one of the big things is CEQA. You've probably heard of that from some people. Yeah, I'm, if, that's my background, urban yeah. planning. So yes, California Environmental Quality Act. 100%. So I think there's a lot of good stuff in CEQA. I, I really do. I think there's it's good to pay attention to what's going on in the environment. However, the way it's been structured and the amount of time it takes to get through that and the amount of money it takes to get through it, that all is passed on directly to the person buying the home, the person buy, uh, renting the commercial facility, the industrial facility, and then eventually gets passed on to the uh, consumer. So I would tell you, and anybody that's doing commercial development would tell you that the amount of money you're paying for a house today, the amount of money you're paying for uh, commercial space rent, industrial space rent, doesn't matter, all, all, things in, uh, all things realty. Quite frankly, it's largely coming from the cost of getting entitled in the first place to the point that most developers don't even want to develop the property. They, they want to do the development after entitlement which means it's an entire industry now to do entitlement. Meaning if the property is a million dollars. Where the development order is approved by the local government right, entity. Correct. Yes. So if I'm, a, if I'm a guy that buys a piece of property and I bring it to entitlement and I have to spend half a million dollars to do that and it takes three years 
and the property was worth a million dollars, suddenly when I sell that property, it's worth three million because nobody wants to wait and go through all that. So now that price gets passed on. So you're tripling the price of raw land just with entitlement. So I just want to go back to the the land use for the properties that you're developing with Jim. Is this where, more warehousing or they're residential units? Uh, the, these are actually warehousing they units. They are warehousing. Yes. So because that itself, in, in the municipality inside of the 37th District, right. there is this now, there's a zero-sum proposition with yes. their special provisions. They're not originally zoned as warehouses that are now competing against the, s the square acreage for housing units. So you're you're actually sort of in the middle of that mix of right, how that's shifted. Right in the center of it. So it's became very expensive uh, to do industrial property for that reason. Nobody wants industrial property. All they want is residential property. And we can certainly understand that, right? We well, need we to, need it. We need it, 100%. Sort, that's the original question about yeah, the housing availability. 100%. So the cities have made that available. Uh, the cities definitely want housing. Uh, and and the way the law is today, you can't, you, you literally can't displace any residential housing with industrial or commercial without uh, moving that someplace else. In other words, if there's an overlay of residential, that has to move to another area. You cannot eliminate residential by building industrial or commercial warehousing. It is needed, though. It's definitely needed. Okay, there, there's a lot more to unpack, but I'm going to, I've, I've asked about the intersectionality is about the sprawl situation. It's a very, it's a very heady kind of question that's, that's bringing the transportation decisions that have a great deal to do with housing availability and affordability. So I, uh, as I bring up with other candidates, your beaten path is closer to the I-15, that expansion of that freeway, but that we are building our ways with such antiquated solutions by just adding more freeway, which the Urban Planning 101 is, adding lanes just means more traffic. It will not relieve traffic. And more traffic, of course, has its consequences with the climate situation. Sure. So what kind of leadership in the state Senate would you give Guy Selleck to to bring a the intersectional response to the ad the, the traffic needs to meet the traffic needs to the, meet the housing mix affordable housing mix anywhere along those commutes in Southern California especially the 37th district well certainly you can uh, for instance you can go out to the i-15 today and we're not we're talking about Orange County of course but, but right this but is you're all... that you the i-15 and the i-405 have their cousins in Abs solutions absolutely so if you go out there right now most of the construction for single-family homes right now is happening out in the Inland Empire it's happening out in the Hemet area um, anywhere between Riverside and Temecula in the backcountry that's where most of your single-family developments are right now and those people are all filtering to the 91 and they're filtering to the 15 and though they're, they're coming to Orange County for a good job, right? Um, what I'm trying to do is build jobs in the Inland Empire with, with the buildings I'm putting out there, because frankly, there's no places. These are small buildings, by the way, uh, 15,000 square Gems feet. Gems buildings are. Yes, they're 15,000 square feet. They're made for small and medium businesses. They're not mega warehouses for Amazon. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm actually trying to help with the plumbers, the electricians, the carpenters, the people that need 10 or 15,000 square feet to operate, and they simply can't get it in Orange County, and they really can't find it in the Inland Empire now because everybody wants to build a million-square-foot warehouse, and that's not what we're doing. That's the opposite. Um, so 
first of all, you have to build business to keep those people in the Inland Empire. That's part of the problem, right? If you if you have congested roads in Orange County, if you have congested roads in LA, it's because they're coming for work. And they're not just living there, they're, they're commuting into there. So one of those solutions is to keep them in the Inland Empire and keep them employed well in the Inland Empire. So shorten the commute, not add lanes. Absolutely, shorten the commute and but be willing to build more roads where not more lanes necessarily, for instance, South County, uh, Orange County, doesn't want um, a tunnel, right? There's been a tunnel discussed in the past going from the Inland Empire over to South Orange County, uh, let's say into the San Clemente area. That area has never been touched, never developed. They would use the excuse of environmental, but the reality is that would release an enormous amount of traffic on the 91, the 405, the 15. It would, it would change everything, but you can't build a new road in California because of the environmental rules and the lawsuits. Well, you, do you understand the rationale? Oh, yeah. I mean, you build more roads, you're a, more of an unattainment area than you right. were previously. So, I, I mean, that, that, that's a whole other topic about how oh. the tow roads were approved. <laughs> so, I, they, I yeah. need to get, the, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Guy Selick. He is a Republican running in the state Senate election in this 37th district. He is the CEO, principal, and the founder of Builders Max, Inc., and he's talking about that experience. So I, I want to get to a very specific item here that you've, in your campaign literature, you've raised the matter of retail thefts. And we, we know that some of that was blown out of proportion. The right. retail association said, okay, we were a little wrong about some of that. But you were... You were and you were in. It was an interview last year, and you were adding up, you know, the losses between these uh, sort of these massive crash, smash and crashers that South Coast Plaza, Irvine Spectrum Park Place. And I, I totaled up the losses because I needed to make a comparison <laughs> here on money lost. Sure. It's about a million two hundred if we round up a few numbers. That's probably insured. So the victim part is, you know, it's somewhat, somewhat contained, somewhat. But I'd like to direct our attention to the, the remedies for the Orange County Board of Supervisor, Andrew Doe's, appropriating $13 million of COVID relief funds to ostensibly to provide meals to seniors. But he did not disclose that $13 million total. It was several different kinds of payments, but the total is mm -hmm. that. And that's the total we know about. We don't know what Andrew Doe's been moving around that, he, that we don't know about. Right. So I want to know, I, I think 13 million is a considerable larger amount than let's say we totaled up that, those thefts in those malls. So if, if 1 million 200 offended you, how, do, how are you handling 13 million dollars that was surreptitiously moved to, a, we'll call it a family sort of a, you know, fund? Well, yeah, first of all, Claudia, I'm not com I'm not fully aware of the 13 million and, and where it's all went that you're talking about. But I, c I can certainly tell you when I talk about retail theft, it's not just the dollar value for me. That retail theft is about an overall thought process that we can steal from from people and get away with it. And well, that, and that gets out of control. But that's why I'm bringing up these two amounts, though. Sure. That it's there isn't that you're not aware of how it worked. If that was maybe his model of operating Andrew Doe's. There is no audit of that, and he is a serial kind of violator of providing really tight audits. It's it's the previous charge was was suspended, but so this is a new one. So if you don't have, we can't any of us pass the quiz. 
Where is that $13 million? That is a breakdown in local government financial I w- mechanisms. I would, ag- I would agree with you. Uh, so you understand where I stand as a Republican. I'm a fiscal conservative. I believe in less government. I don't believe in spending money from the government. I believe in individual responsibility. And I believe people are responsible for their own actions. I'm a constitutionalist, and I don't believe in taking more money from the people than is needed for basic services. So why that $13 million has been taken and where it's been spent, yes, we should know exactly well, where it's spent. It was COVID relief, and so we had a pandemic that required Tons of a, a net, a net to catch people and people where they were having to stay in place. So well, uh, I just want to put those amounts out there and the mechanisms. So as a state senator, would you have, uh, would you address that kind of ethics that requires full disclosure and tight auditing? I totally agree with tight auditing and full disclosure. Nothing should be spent of tax money that we don't know where it goes. Every penny ought to be accounted for. So I want to talk about, since we're t- the financials, what your position is on Senator State Senator Dodd's Elder Fraud Protection Bill 278 that would give seniors uh, a, a way to hold accountable lending, not, I keep saying lending, financial institutions who are seeing uh, odd kind of drawdowns of that seniors' funds in their accounts that are actually, it's, it's a fraudulent sort of manipulation from some scammer. So what is your position on Senate Bill 278? So I honestly haven't studied Senate Bill 278, Claudia. I, I don't know all the provisions in it. But I have two elderly parents actually at my house right now in their late 80s. You probably wonder about that. I wonder about it every day. And, and they won't even buy anything online. They're so worried. I do it for them. Oh, so, so there. Oh, that's the that's the education process, the intergenerational. Yes, hundred percent. So it's not the state senator, but so so anyway. So what would you? Uh, what's your position on something? A mechanism that way. Let's say maybe not the word for word. So a mechanism to 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 protect our seniors to with hold fraud? them. Yes, to hold accountable the financial institutions ab- ab- that are absolutely. witnessing. Absolutely, there are a ton of scams going on out there, like reverse mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. I don't. I I, I believe that that unfortunately uh when when people age all of us um you know reach a point where we don't understand all the new little scams that are out there and they trick them and it's very unfortunate to see it's it's despicable quite frankly it's the worst group of people to pick on so i'm i am really hopping around Paul, and i'm trying to pick up some different other kinds of policy arenas so that the listeners have a, a you know lots of different frames of reference here so i i'm going to say i've got skin in this game and i think consumers of media do too and i know you appreciate as you're talking about your personal business history fair compensation for value of proprietary material so what is your position on legislation such as not the word for word there's assembly bill 886 which was uh, which it tanked last uh, year, um, wherein I'm going to get this right here, wherein that this is a way of holding, putting value on material content that is available out in the public domain, which is being scraped by artificial intelligence entrepreneurs, and the. The rough irony for all of us that are producing content that, and it's happened to me personally, where an entrepreneur in the Netherlands 
approached me with, hey, I can help you do your news easily with my AI. And I, mm -hmm. I answered him and I said, you know, I'm producing that content that you want to sell back to me. So the, it's the Assembly Bill 886 doesn't exist any longer, but do you see a need to defend proprietary ma material, especially generated by journalists who are having a difficult time, an existential crisis, remaining in that career, how you as a state senator would legislate artificial intelligence scraping otherwise valuable content? So obviously AI needs to be controlled and one of the functions of government, one of the few functions of government that I, that I greatly believe in is the protection of its people at the border, whether it's, whether it's the military, the border, police, fire, and AI is the new one on the block. Clearly AI needs to have some, some guardrails uh, and, and we, we, we appear to have none. It's developing around us every day and nobody has any. There's, there's fake videos, there's fake voice messages, there's fake everything. And, they're, and to your point, they're stealing- Fake owners they're, they're of data. They're taking intellectual things from people that create. The arts are at the core of our soul as humans. And the minute you take that away, you're starting to take our humanity away. So the minute you take that away, I think not only are you stealing something from somebody, but you're taking our humanity. And I think we have to be very careful with that. So do you have a particular kind of a package you propose as a candidate for the state Senate race, what you would do to defend proprietary material that is easily available in the, in the broader domain? Well, I think there ought to be some very strict laws around stealing proprietary material. First of all, there are for, there, there's been laws for this for years, but it just haven't been tailored for AI, right? We have trademarks. We have all kinds of patent infringement laws. There should be laws around AI very quickly. I think that's a federal issue, probably more than a state issue. But as a state, there's but things California, we can do. But California, right, is codifying 100%. things that lead the country. So I want to just give you, in like the few minutes, the, the minute left we have, an opportunity to let people know how they can follow you or they can meet you. So, so Guy Selleck is somebody sure. people are acquainted with. So please follow me at, at, uh, on Instagram at Selleck for Senate. You can just Google Guy Selleck. Uh, everything about me comes up very quickly. And my website, SelleckforSenate.com. Uh, follow me in any of these venues. I'm, I'm probably on YouTube and Instagram more than anything. I'm not a big Facebook person, although uh, I do have some things posted there. Uh, certainly follow me, and uh, I would love to hear from anybody. I get personal messages to my email all the time at info at com. Please email me with questions. I'm more than happy to answer. I actually do answer my own questions, and I don't have a campaign manager. I do it all myself. You're, we're talking to the entrepreneur, the, the showrunner. Well, thank you, Guy Selleck, for coming all the way to our Studio A to be on Ask a Leader today. Thank you very much for being here. My guest was Guy Selleck, founder, CEO, principal of Builders Max Inc. as he's running as a Republican in the California State Senate, 37th State Senate District. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, my guests will include Orange County Board of Education area candidate Dr. Nancy Watkins and then Republican congressional candidate in the 47th District, Max Ukrapina. I'm waiting to hear back from other candidates, and I'll keep you all posted. Talk with you next week. Thank you all for listening.